We're looking at the book of Romans, and this morning we start a new section in this letter. In the sections we've looked at so far, Paul has answered two main questions. First of all, who needs the gospel? The short answer to that is everyone. And then Paul answered the question, what is the gospel? The answer there is that we can be declared not guilty before God because Jesus took the punishment for our guilt. When we put our faith in his work, God's not guilty verdict comes to us as a gracious gift. We are declared righteous. That's where we've been so far. And this morning we come to a third section of Romans. In chapters 5 to 8, Paul deals with the results of the gospel. When we trust that Christ has done what we could never do for ourselves, and when God pronounces us righteous because of what Christ has done, then we have to ask, what then? Is that it? Do we go on like before? Well, Paul says, no, everything changes. And chapters 5 to 8 tell us what difference it makes when we embrace the good news for ourselves. So turn with me to Romans chapter 5. In the Church Bible, it's page 1132, or in the large print, 1570. I'm going to read Romans 5, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though For a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is God's word. And this section of God's word is all about the hope brought to us by the gospel. Hope is like oxygen for our lives. Without hope, we're just existing. And we end up with a kind of outlook that's described by Woody Allen. This is what he says. 
more than any other time in history, mankind faces a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness. The other, to total extinction. Let us pray we have the wisdom to choose correctly. That's an unbearable outlook. And yes, he's trying to make a joke of it. But there is no hope there. If you think hard enough about life without God, that's where you end up. And there are plenty of people who live with that kind of hopeless outlook. They're still breathing, but they're not really alive. But of course, not everyone is like that. Plenty of people around us are full of hope. The trouble is, they're pursuing false hopes. Hopes that in the end can only disappoint them. I think of one person I know who put all of his hope in finding a wife. And for a few years, he was motivated and energized by that. If he could just find a wife, he knew he'd be happy and fulfilled. And he did find a wife. But he soon discovered she couldn't provide all that he expected her to provide. And so very soon he started chasing a new hope in his life. He decided to retrain and start a new career. And for a few years that kept him motivated. But when he finished his training and got his job, he found that didn't provide what he hoped it was going to provide. And so, he and his wife decided to adopt. They put their hopes in a child. Having a child would fulfill them. Well, now they've got that child. And I worry about how things are going to turn out for the three of them. A spouse and a job and children are all good things. But if we put our hope in those things, they will turn out to be false hopes. Even if you have the very best spouse and job and family, they cannot bear the weight of your hopes. They were never meant to bear that weight. If you put all your hopes on them, you will crush them. And you'll end up disappointed. But as Christians, we have a hope that can bear all the weight we put on it. In the passage we've just read, Paul calls it the hope of the glory of God. God himself is infinitely glorious. What does that mean? It means he has infinite weightiness and significance and worth. And the Bible tells us we can share in that glory. That's a promise the New Testament comes back to again and again. And so when we talk about the hope of the glory of God, we're not talking about the kind of hope that says, I hope I pass my exams. 
or I hope it's sunny tomorrow. Those kind of hopes are uncertain, especially the one about sun. But this hope, the hope we've just read about, is sure and certain. It's a promise. But we have to recognize it is not a promise for everyone. Paul says the hope of the glory of God is for those at peace with God. Look again at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Quite a significant change happens in verse 1. Up to now, Paul's message in this letter has been for everyone. In chapters 1 to 4, he's been calling everyone to put their faith in Jesus. But now, Paul starts talking specifically to those who have put their faith in Jesus. Now you'll notice he's talking to we. We who have been justified through faith. He's talking to those who have taken God at his word, who have been declared not guilty by God, and who are now at peace with God. That's not how it used to be for us. Think back for a moment to the picture of earlier chapters. In those chapters, Paul described a situation where we lived in rebellion against God. We lived, to one degree or another, suppressing God's truth. Taking the worship that belonged to God and giving it to things that were made by God. To one degree or another, we lived using our bodies and minds to defy God rather than to serve him. And on God's side, his wrath was being revealed against our godlessness and wickedness. And the full measure of his wrath was being stored up for the day of his wrath, the final judgment day. Remember that picture. It's a picture of hostility on both sides. There is no peace in that picture. But Paul says now the picture is different for us. At the cross, God has poured out his wrath on his own son. You and I have abandoned our rebellion and we've come to God for mercy. And we have been shown mercy. Now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The hostilities have ended. God is no longer our enemy. Now he's our father and friend and protector. In verse 2, Paul describes this peace in a slightly different way. We used to stand under wrath, but now we stand in grace. Let that reality sink in for a moment. 
If you're trusting in Jesus, you are at peace with your Creator. The most powerful being in the universe looks on you with a smile, not with a frown. Maybe these words will help it sink in for you. A mind at perfect peace with God. Oh, what a word is this. A sinner reconciled through blood. This, this indeed is peace. By nature and by practice, far, so very far from God. Yet now, by grace, brought near to him through faith in Jesus' blood. So dear, so very dear to God. More dear I cannot be. The love with which he loves the Son, such is his love for me. If you are a Christian, that is reality for you. And so this morning, if you've come here feeling harassed or anxious or maybe even worthless, Remember how blessed you are to stand in God's grace, at peace with him. If you're downhearted this morning about what you don't have, remember what you do have. And it gets even better. We stand in God's grace and, at the end of verse 2, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. The word boast is often used in a negative sense. In fact, day to day, that's probably the only way we use it. And back in chapter 3, Paul said boasting in our own achievements is excluded. It has no place for us anymore. But when it comes to God's achievements, we have plenty to boast about. And so here the words boast in have the sense of rejoice in or be filled with confidence in. We've already thought about what the hope of the glory of God means. It means we will share in his glory. The Apostle John puts it like this. When Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We will both see his glory and we will share in his glory. Back in chapter 3, Paul said that without Christ, we fall short of the glory of God. Meaning, we lack it. We don't have it. But here he says that in Christ, we have the sure and certain hope of sharing in the glory of God. So we have peace now and glory ahead of us. And Paul says this hope of glory can grow even in the midst of suffering. Verse 3. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. If you're using the older NIV, you'll notice that verse 3 says, we also rejoice in our sufferings. That's better than the new NIV's glory in our sufferings. 
It's better because there is nothing good about suffering itself. We do not glory in pain or hurt or abuse or loss. No, Paul's point is we rejoice even in the midst of suffering because we're able to look beyond our suffering. We can look to glory on the other side of our suffering. I say we can look beyond suffering because we do not always do it. It's certainly not automatic for us. Sometimes we only seem able to look at our suffering. And that just produces despair. That just causes us to give up. But if we will look through our suffering to the glory God has in store for us, then our suffering will produce perseverance in us. Now, the obvious question is, how does that happen? Well, Tim Keller has a comment that I think is helpful here. He says this, Suffering removes distractions. Suffering removes from us rival sources of confidence and hope. Other places we might look to for our sense that deep down we are okay and that our future will be okay. Suffering drives us to the one place where we find real hope, real confidence and certainty, God. All of our other hopes will finally be removed from us. When we lose our looks or our health, we can no longer place our confidence in our looks or health. When we lose our job, we can no longer place our confidence in our job. When we lose loved ones, we can no longer place our confidence in those loved ones. And those losses are not good. But they can drive us to look to our only true source of confidence. And when they do, they produce something good in us. Perseverance. Many of you, I know, are experiencing suffering at the moment. Of one kind or another, major or minor. And whatever that suffering is, you do not have to pretend that it's good. But you can let it drive you to put all your hope and confidence in God. And that is good. Because you cannot lose God. If he is your source of hope, then you can never lose hope. And that experience, Paul says, of being driven to God produces not only perseverance, he says it produces character in us. Think for just a moment about the various Christians that you know. And then think of the ones who show the most strength of character and the most gracious character and the most contentment, 
the most genuine joy in their lives. As you think of those people, it's almost a given that those men and women have gone through suffering in their lives. And the suffering they went through was not good. They didn't seek it and they didn't enjoy it. But they allowed that suffering to drive them not into bitterness or despair, but to hope in God. And the result is the godly character you and I can see in their lives today. So when suffering comes to us, each of us has a choice. And it's not a choice that we make just once. We might have to make it a dozen times in a day, putting our hope in God again and again lifting our eyes again and again to the glory he has in store for us. I think a sign of godly character is not so much that we don't worry at all. I think it's that we're quicker to turn back to God from our worry. We're quicker to renew our hope in him. I think that's godly character. And this hope of ours has a solid basis, Paul tells us. We can be certain God is committed to us. Why? Because our hope of glory is built on the foundation of God's love. All of us have probably had the experience of putting our hope in something or someone, only for them to let us down. Maybe we voted for a politician who turned out to be a dud. Maybe we went through some treatment that was supposed to solve a health problem for us. But it either did us no good, or it maybe even made us worse. I can remember reading superhero comics which always had adverts for the Charles Atlas bodybuilding course. And Charles Atlas guaranteed me that after a few weeks of his exercises, I could have a body like his. Of course, you had to send him quite a bit of money to get the exercises. And my dad used to tell me that if I ordered that course, I'd end up having to write again months later saying, I have completed the course. Now please send me the muscles. (laughs) And in case you're wondering, I never did send for the course or for the muscles. And if I had, my hope in Charles Atlas might have turned out to be misplaced hope. But Paul says our hope in God will never result in a letdown. It will never prove to be in vain. We will never be ashamed that we counted on God. And Paul gives us two proofs of that. First, he says, God's love is confirmed by our counselor. Verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love 
has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When we come to Christ, we're given a down payment of our future inheritance, a down payment of the glory of God. And the down payment is that God's Holy Spirit comes to live in us. One of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to assure us of God's love for us. He comforts us and he counsels us. Jesus said the Holy Spirit guides us into all the truth. And one of the greatest truths is the truth of God's love for his children. So when the promises of God's word don't seem to be getting through to us, we're not left alone. We can ask the Spirit to apply those promises to us and make us see how real they are. That's what we could call the subjective confirmation of God's love. It concerns our sense and our experience of his love. And we all know that sense can be stronger or weaker at different times in our lives. But then in verses 6 to 10, Paul goes on to talk about the objective, unchanging confirmation of God's love. He tells us that God's love is confirmed by the fact and the logic of the cross. First, he mentions the fact of the cross. Verse 6, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't always feel God's love, but we can always be sure of it because of the cross. And Paul shows us that by first pointing to the high point of human love. Maybe, he says, as human beings, we'd be willing to die for a good person. Someone who had helped us, maybe, or been generous to us. Someone who seemed to be worthy of our sacrifice. Maybe our sense of gratitude and commitment would even cause us to lay down our life for that good person. But, Paul says, on the cross, God the Son did something unthinkable. Something that makes the greatest human love pale by comparison. On the cross... He laid down his life for his enemies. For people who had only shown him hostility and hatred. That is the fact of the cross. And in the light of that, the logic of the cross says, if God died for me while I was his enemy, how can I ever doubt his love now that I'm his friend? And the logic of the cross goes further. It assures us of the hope of glory. 
Look what Paul says in verses 9 and 10. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Verses 9 and 10 are really saying the same thing. They're in parallel with one another. And the key phrase in each verse is, how much more? It's an argument from the major thing to the minor thing. If God has already done this major thing, then how much more can I count on this relatively minor thing? And so in verse 9, if God has already done the major thing of paying for my guilt by punishing his son instead of me, how much more will he do the minor thing of giving me glory instead of wrath on judgment day? Then in verse 10, reconciliation is another way of talking about being at peace. And Paul says, if God has done the major thing of reconciling me to himself while I was his enemy, how much more can I count on his favor now that Christ is risen again and is working on my behalf, interceding for me and coming back for me? Someone has said, if he was able to save us when we were hostile to him, would he fail us now that we are his friends? The God who opened heaven to us will ensure we arrive there. That is the logic of the cross. It doesn't just tell us God loves us. It tells us nothing at all can separate us from his love. And this confidence that we have, this hope of glory, overflows in rejoicing, Paul says. Verse 11, not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Again, as we noticed earlier, boast here has the sense of rejoice. And as you know, rejoicing is a very tricky thing. It's tricky because we can't just tell ourselves to rejoice. And certainly other people cannot tell us to rejoice. Well, they can, but it's not going to achieve anything except to annoy us. We all know that rejoicing is not something we can just do on demand. Rejoicing is a byproduct of something else. It comes to us as we focus on what God has already done for us in Christ. And as we focus on the unshakable glory he has in store for us. Focusing on those realities will cause our hope to overflow in genuine rejoicing. One of the best ways we can build hope that leads to rejoicing is to come together like this every week. 
to listen to God's word to us, to have his promises repeated to us, and to sing hope-building songs to each other. That's one of the best ways to build our hope. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to sing hope-building songs to each other. First of all, a song that says, Rejoicing in hope, we wait for our King. And then we'll close by singing, There is a Day.